Greetings, friends, and a very happy new year to all of you. It is the weekend of Sunday, January the 8th, and we're back for a new year. We're going to begin a sermon series today, a brief series with Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8 in mind, where the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So next week, we'll look at how Jesus is the same today, and the following week, we'll look at how Jesus is the same forever. But today, I want us to focus on how Jesus is the same yesterday. A Sunday school teacher was asking some of her students some questions after a series of lessons on the abilities of God, on God's abilities. And she asked the question, is there anything that God can't do? Everybody was silent. Finally, one boy held up his hand. The teacher on seeing this was kind of disappointed that they had missed the point of the lesson. And she sighed and asked, well, what is it that you think God can't do? And the boy replied, he can't please everybody. There's a lot of truth in that young boy's answer because over and over again within the scriptures, we see people who are never pleased with the things that God does and certainly the way in which he does them. Cain wasn't pleased with God and his ways. The Jewish people in the wilderness weren't pleased with God and his ways. The religious leaders in Jesus's time were not pleased with God and his ways. And even today, people are not pleased with God and his ways. We seem to think that we can improve on God's ways or that they are wrong, they're outdated, or they're simply irrelevant to our situation. You see, we some people want to change his word and make the gospel more appealing through prosperity or by abusing people's emotions. But we all, whether it be in biblical times or today in 2023, we want to God to change his ways because often we refuse to change our own. And if there was ever a scripture to draw encouragement from an ever-changing world, this would be it. You see, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever, Hebrews 13, 8. Heaven is screaming that. Everything around us may change. And people may change and try to change his word, but Jesus Christ does not change. He won't cancel his offer of unconditional love and grace, but he won't withdraw his demands for repentance and obedience either. And if the Bible tells us anything, it tells us over and over again that God will not change. Hebrews six seventeen through 18, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. <clears throat> he confirmed it with an oath. God did, did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us May be, it may be greatly encouraged. <clears throat> Excuse me. Scripture tells us over and over that God won't change. We look at Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. I, the Lord, do not change. Look at what James says in chapter 1, verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Do we remember in the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 23, when Balaam was paid to curse Israel, God didn't allow it. Instead, he pronounced a blessing on him through the prophet. 
And then he says in chapter 23, verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. You see, God wanted them to know he won't change. And friends, Jesus is the same. He will not change. And I want to focus on Jesus being the same yesterday, but what we should understand is that yesterday can go back as far in history as really we would like. It could go back to a literal yesterday, or it could go back to to when we were born. Now, in the context of Hebrews chapter 13, it's speaking about since the arrival of Jesus as we read about him in the Gospels, but I'd like for us to go even further back in history. I want us to go back to a time before Jesus existed as a man, and we're going to look at John chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that has been made. Now, who is this Word mentioned in these verses? Well, it's Jesus. And we know John is speaking about Jesus, because if we read further down in John 1, 14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Eugene Peterson in the message says, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So now remember, Jesus didn't become Jesus until he became flesh. And that's important to remember because this tells us that Jesus was the word before he became Jesus, God in flesh. And we know that the word who is Jesus existed before creation because John says the word was in the beginning. In other words, the word was in existence before the world was was even created. So Jesus wasn't a created being as some religious groups believe because he existed before anything else was created. The word didn't come into being. He already existed and has continually existed. Jesus himself claimed his own divine preexistence in John chapter 8. When he said to the Jewish people, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And notice that John doesn't leave any room for ifs, buts, or maybes. He says, in the beginning was the word, which is very very familiar to what Moses wrote in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God. You see, both Moses and John are writing as a matter of fact. The Bible doesn't set about trying to convince us that God exists. It's written as a matter of fact that he, in fact, does exist. So now we might ask, well, what did the word do in the beginning? Well, before we answer that question, let me ask this question. What does the word word mean? Well, just like we can make a cup, we can't make a cup of tea or coffee without water. We can't communicate with people without words. And, and if I want to tell you the, if I want you to understand what I'm thinking, I need to use words to tell you the, the Greek word for for word is the word logos and it means a thought expressed or something said the greeks saw logos as reason or wisdom and and they thought that the logos was some kind of a go between between a spiritual god and the material universe the jewish people would have understood what logos meant and their minds would have gone straight back to genesis because they understood that this was a releva- a revelation in the mind of god 
So we look at Genesis 1 and notice throughout Genesis that we find the words God said. Genesis uh, 1, chapter 3, God said, let there be light. In in verse 6, God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from heaven. We could go on and on, but the point we're trying to make here is that the word was the one speaking creation into existence. And, and just a little side note, each of these days were a command. The word said, let there, it's, it's a little misleading. It should really read, be light, be a vault between the waters. The word of God was the one commanding creation into existence. And so the word wasn't just, a, just, just present at creation, but actively involved in creation. And that's what Paul's trying to get us to understand in Colossians 1, 16 through 17, for in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, power, rulers, or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's what John is trying to get us to understand when he says, the, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word and he was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. He's trying to tell us that the word was, therefore, before creation. The word commanded creation into existence. And the word was with God even before creation. And the word was God, John 1. 1. You see, people, you see, friends, the word is a person. It's not an attribute of God or a production of God. He is the same essence as the Father. In other words, he is holy. He is deity. Hebrews chapter 1 says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Notice that phrase, the exact representation of his being. The literal translation says that Jesus is the carbon copy of God. Now we hear a lot about the word Trinity, but but that word doesn't exist in our in our Bibles. But we do have the word Godhead used in the King James Version. When Paul is speaking at Mars Hill, he says in Acts chapter 17, 29, for as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. He also says in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Colossians 2, 9, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The NIV writes that verse this way, <clears throat> for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. I remember a couple of years ago, I saw a very practical illustration concerning the Trinity, the Godhead. One, one potato uh, was put in, in the middle of the table and then a plate of mashed potatoes and then a plate of boiled potatoes and a baked potato. And, and the speaker went on to explain that although the mashed potato was different in appearance from the boiled and the baked potatoes and vice versa, they are all essentially still potatoes, just in different forms. See, the scripture talks about God as being deity. The Bible talks about Jesus as being deity. And the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit as being deity. 
three different personalities, but one in the same, as as First John five twenty tells us. You see, whenever we read our scripture, we find Jesus referring to himself as the Son of Man. He's he's talking about his human nature, but when we find him referring to himself as the Son of God, he's talking about his divine nature. And so, although the Son existed in the beginning with God, it was necessary that the Word should become flesh and dwell or tabernacle is another great word um, among us in John 1.14. But why did Jesus need to come in bodily form? Well, Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 through 8, that Jesus, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, by looking like other men, and by sharing in human nature. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Notice Jesus existed in the form of God. And Paul says without that human form, it would have been impossible for him to fulfill the unique purpose for which he came. But why did he need a body? And John 20, 30 through 31, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, John never uses the word miracle in his gospel. He, he always uses the word signs. And here Jesus says he, he needed a body in order to present the signs, which were to be the authentication, the endorsement of his Messiahship. He needed a body to set the human race, um, the, the perfect example of obedience to the will of the Father. And above all, by means of that perfect life, to demonstrate his worthiness to become the perfect offering for the sin of the world. The word had to become flesh because this was the divine plan right from the start. Remember what God said to the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The word needed a body so he could die on the cross and crush Satan once and for all. And that's why we find the writer of the letter to the Hebrews quoting from Psalm 40 in Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you didn't desire, but you prepared a body for me and you had no pleasure in whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me to do your will O God. Notice that the body was prepared for me. The word became flesh was all part of God's plan. So why did he come in the flesh? He came in order to be able to communicate with mankind, with humanity in a personal, unmistakable and uncomplicated manner. Remember, Jesus is the same yesterday, today and forever. He has always been. You see, friends, that's what God did over and over and over again. He told his people he was coming, but they simply didn't understand. And then on Isaiah chapter 7, 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with a child to bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And then in Malachi chapter 3, behold, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. 
And so Jesus had to come in the form of man to explain to us in simple human language exactly what God wants us to hear. Do we want to know what God is like? Then look at Jesus. Philip wanted to know what God was like. In chapter 14, verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet have you not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do we, do we want to know what God's will is? Then we have to listen to Jesus. John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Do we want to know how to live a life which pleases God? Follow the example of Jesus, 1 Peter 2, 21. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. The point we're trying to make here is that everything we can know about God is revealed in Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus isn't merely a representation of the word. He is the word of God. Revelation nineteen thirteen. he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the word of God. John here is speaking about the sacrifice Jesus as the word of God. John 5 The Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have have life. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees because they searched the scriptures and didn't find Jesus, even though the scriptures speak of him. So what does all of this mean in light of Hebrews 13, 8? It means that yesterday, Jesus was the Word. It means that yesterday, Jesus was God in the flesh. It means that yesterday, Jesus was the Word of God. But not only yesterday, but today and forevermore, He will be the Word. Jesus never changes. But He does ask us to change. And the word that the Bible, for for that in the Bible, is the word repent. Repent. Now, I think the word repent gets a lot of bad press, right? Sometimes we'll hear people say, you know, repent, repent, and it's, it's used in sort of a negative way. And sometimes the word repent isn't used at all in some religious circles because it's seen as offensive and comes across as negative. The Greek word for repent is miantonio, and it simply means to think differently, to reconsider. And in the Bible, repentance, just like faith, leads us somewhere else. The word repent is a positive word because it leads us to blessings. King Hezekiah became ill in 2 Chronicles 32. He prayed to the Lord who answered him and gave him a miraculous sign, but Hezekiah's heart was proud and he did not respond to the kindness shown to him. Therefore, the Lord's wrath was on him and on Judah and Jerusalem. Then Hezekiah repented of the pride of his heart and did the people of Jerusalem, therefore, and the Lord's wrath did not come on them during the days of Hezekiah. Hezekiah's repentance led to him and the people of Jerusalem being blessed by God. Repent at my rebuke, Proverbs 1. Then I will pour out my thoughts to you. I will make known to you my teachings. Solomon says, when a person repents, God will let you know what his will is. When Peter preached the first uh, gospel sermon, he says to the Jewish people listening in Acts chapter 2, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
Peter says that when a person repents, they not only receive forgiveness, but they also receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 7, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. So do we see how real biblical repentance always leads to blessings? Hezekiah had to think differently. Solomon encouraged us to think differently. And Peter asked the Jewish people to think differently. But there's more to repentance than just thinking differently. The Bible says that our thinking differently is more than just feeling sorry for our sins. It should lead to a change of direction, a change of behavior. Biblical repentance is taking the time to think differently, which leads us to live differently. But repentance isn't a one-time act. And friends, repentance is something that God wants all of humanity to do. Acts 17, in the past God overlooked such, such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Sometimes I think we wonder why hasn't Jesus come back yet? And these are questions that we don't really know the answer to, right? We don't know when he's coming. But Second Peter 3 does say this, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God perhaps hasn't come back yet because he's given us time to think differently about him. He's giving us time to think differently about our, our lives and our lifestyle. He's giving us time to think differently about our relationships with him. If we didn't believe that Jesus was the word yesterday, we have no reason to carry on believing that today. And if we didn't believe that Jesus became God in flesh yesterday, we have no reason to carry on believing that today. And if we didn't repent yesterday, we have no reason to think differently about our relationship with him today. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever as Hebrews 13 8 tells us he is the word the word who became a man the word of god and whose word still stands yesterday today and forever amen and god bless